This episode of the Idle Book Club is brought to you by Audible, the largest collection of audiobooks anywhere on the internet. If you go to audibletrial.com slash idlebooks, you can get a month free of Audible and a free audiobook to keep. That's audibletrial.com slash idlebooks. Welcome to the Idle Book Club for March 2017. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. And this month, we're discussing The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Next month, we're discussing The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. Sarah, why did we choose this book? Um, there are, I think, a lot of reasons. The The first one, primarily, um, is that Hulu is coming out with a limited TV series of this book, um, which you have never read. I read... Years ago, I think, and we can talk about when exactly I read it later. Um, so it seemed like a good excuse to read it for you before the TV show airs and you're completely ruined for what this book is. Um, another reason is that this book has been in the news more recently um, in the same way that a lot of dystopian fiction like 1984, which I know we'll talk about later, has people are thinking about these pieces of uh, writing a lot more given the current political climate in the U.S. and our local bookstore in San Francisco just happened to be giving away free copies of The Handmaid's Tale a few weeks ago, which I was fortunate enough to pick up, um, which is now why we have a copy of it. And so for all of these reasons, I thought it would be interesting for me to revisit the book and for you to to have a reason to, to read it for the first time. Yeah, exactly. So The Handmaid's Tale is a piece of, I think of it as alternate future, but it's really sort yeah, of alternate Yeah, dystopian present. is not probably correct, right? No, I think dystopian is totally correct. Okay. But I, what I'm saying is it's not so much an alternate future so much as it is really an alternate present, right? I mean, the, the events of the book, as far as I'm aware, take place in at the end of the 20th century. Is that not correct? I think the late 80s were sort of portrayed as being the last no, sort of, of the normal, normal years. Yeah. Yeah. I, so this book was written in 1985 and we're, we're never given, we're given dates at the very end, which by the way, if, if you're listening to this and, and you have not read this book and you are interested in reading it, please don't listen to this until you have, because <laughs> yeah. we will definitely be spoiling it. And I think the ending is one of those things that it's really worth getting into without... Yeah. Knowing what the ending is going to be. So the premise of the book is that uh, the United States of America has been forcibly uh, sort of the government of the United States of America has been forcibly taken over by essentially uh, right wing sort of Christian fundamentalists, I suppose. Uh, and the entire governmental and legal structure of the country has been replaced with an entity called the Republic of Gilead, which is a conservative Christian sort of dictator's police state, I guess, in which women have basically no social or legal standing uh, and largely exist um, as kind of indentured servants, I guess, to the ruling male class is that sort of a rough decent summary it's hard it's hard i'm finding it actually hard to describe now in a few sentences it's this very fundamentalist patriarchal um system that also in in some very specific regards elevates women to very important positions of of power sort of symbolically elevates them but doesn't give them any agency whatsoever yeah and it's an interesting thing um that I think we should discuss maybe later um, just the function of the the mother the the narrator's mother and and how the the narrator's mother is this very classic like second wave she's portrayed as a very classic second wave feminist who was very much like down with men that kind of stereotype and and actually the narrator's friend Moira is also kind of portrayed mm-hmm. in this way right and even though 
the Republic of Gilead is, is very much in favor of the men and in some ways does hold on to these kind of segregated women's only second wave um, stereotypes, which I thought was an interesting aspect of the book. Did you, did you, that's interesting. You read that stuff as feminist. I read it as sort of the kind of exaltation of femininity that is historically used to repress women by treating them as kind of crucial, delicate instruments yeah. as opposed to individual like putting, putting women beings. on a pedestal. Yeah. I, I, I didn't read it as feminist necessarily, but I just thought it was an interesting aspect of this society where, yes, clearly men were in charge and clearly women, even the, the wives of powerful officials are second-class citizens in this society, but it also had some of the trappings of what the narrator's mother certainly would not have wanted, but was kind of suggesting in some ways where... Do you, do you mean in terms of things like abolishing pornography and that kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Um, the pornography and then also that um, no, none of the women who are portrayed as having been feminists in the pre-Gilead society... Um, are necessarily advocating for, directly advocating for a world where women and men just are basically separate from each other. But I thought it was an intentional choice of Atwoods that um, there are some aspects of it because if you know your like 1980s feminist history, there was this weird relationship between feminists and the moral majority because of stuff like uh, pornography. Mm -hmm. um, that was a big, in the 80s, they call it the, the porn wars, right? right? So, I th so while the book is definitely primarily critiquing the religious right and conservative fundamentalists, there also, I think, is that kind of kernel of just huh. yeah. like, hey, f second wave feminists, like you kind of joined up with these people and you kind of got what you wanted, but what you wanted is not actually like once you got it, you realize like how horrible. Well, it's not that they got what they wanted. Sure. It's that you're suggesting perhaps that in the pursuit of what they wanted, which was definitely ultimately very different from what the religious right wanted, they may have made alliances that were against their own interests. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I think the, the society of Gilead, you can call it this patriarchal, um, women's second class system which it definitely is but it, it does have that quality um in it which i thought was just an interesting sure. choice for setting up this kind of dystopian anti-female society yeah i i didn't read it that way as sort of in across the board but there are flashes of that for sure uh when they speak about things like people being really sick of like what are described as basically I guess sort of pornography and prostitution vans like driving along the street, things like that. It's sort of the pre-Gilead world is presented as being one in which uh, women are ex are exploited in these sort of crass commercial ways to such a degree right. that people were all the more willing to let this very repressive conservative revolution sort of happen without as much protestation as you might imagine. Yeah. Yeah. There are these references to um, basically like physical porn hubs, which it's interesting. So we should talk about the, we'll talk about this at the end. I think the, the differences between this book being written in the eighties and how you might imagine it today. Um, but there are, <clears throat> we're supposed to believe that there prior to this takeover, there were like literal, yeah, <laughs> The world was just a den of, sin, sort yeah. of sexual sin, or at least the United States and right. the Western world, I guess. And more, more so than it currently is. Right. Um, and also, there are a lot of kind of very unsettling allusions to the the rape and mutilation of women, which we obviously know, you know, ha unfortunately happens in our current reality. But I think we are kind of meant to... Well, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if we're meant to think that it was getting particularly worse than it currently is. Or so I think you could read it in a way that is not as literal. I mean, the the alternate reality this book posits is clearly intentionally more outrageous than anything we actually expect to happen in literal terms. So I think from there, we can maybe also assume 
that the pre-Gilead reality being suggested was also maybe more outrageous than Atwood literally is intending to suggest the world is becoming. Um, and perhaps in that kind of literary exaggeration, she is suggesting a world that was exaggerated for political gain, right? In the same way mm-hmm. that like currently the actual li- real likely threat of terrorist attacks in the United States, if you actually are live in the United States or most developed countries, the actual likelihood you're going to die in a terror attack is extraordinarily low. And yet the likelihood of that happening is greatly exaggerated by some politicians to exploit fears and and to kind of leverage political capital, right? So you, I could imagine that being part, part of that, uh, the sort of um, like den of iniquity stuff being presented in the pre-Gilead years in this book being a kind of version of that where she's playing it up in order to suggest the kind of political like um, wedge that, you know, that was exploited by the by certain forces. Yeah. But I but but I don't know. It's a good question and especially the point you bring up about the sort of little tendrils to kind of second wave feminism is, is I think an interesting angle that feeds into that as well. Uh before we get I guess even deeper into the kind of political ramifications of this, we should probably actually talk about whether we like this book or not since we have not done that yet. Uh I I think I know the answer to this, but did you like it? I love this book. Yeah. I, I liked it the first time I read it. Um, I think I enjoyed it even more the second time, being a little bit older. It it terrified me a lot more the second time, um, yeah. both for its having a higher political relevance maybe today, but also just being older um, and kind of understanding more what the what going through something like this would maybe even feel like. I think I first read this book when I was in my early 20s, when you're still at an age where you're young enough to not really... Stuff slides off you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas I'm a little bit older now, and so it was more like, oh, my God, this like I can kind of imagine what it would feel like to do this, and it's, like, horrifying. It's stifling. Yeah. Yeah. Just to think about. Yes. Yeah, I, I can imagine that this this is obviously every book we read, we're going to have very different perspectives on. I would imagine that mine is going to be less visceral no matter what reading this book. I still found it, though, you know, despite the fact that I can't read the book from a, w- a woman's perspective, I still found it to be sort of terrifyingly um, stifling and visceral. Uh, it was really uh, I, I I thought it was great. I really loved this book. It was uh exactly what um you know setting aside the the political content which is obviously very considerable um as a book it was so uh straddled that line so well between i think stylistic sort of ambition and pure readability in a way that uh is really you know just really impressive i mean it's just written by someone who's really really good at writing. Uh, and I, I really appreciated that, you know, for something whose subject matter is so dour and depressing, it's, you know, this is a, a page turner of a book, but also when you, you can, you can stop and linger on its sentences and there's always a lot there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I'm just heaping praise here, I guess, but it, I just, I, yep. I found it to be really excellent. Yeah. Margaret Atwood, it is, <laughs> I haven't read a lot of her writing. Um, I've read the the Blind Assassin in this mm-hmm. book. I read Oryx and Crake several years ago. So both of us have read two of yeah. her, and she's definitely written a ton more than that. And and just from my like very brief like, glimpse into her writing, she really does seem to straddle that very very thin line of of having an incredibly readable, exciting story while also making it very, very literary. I mean, there are whole... So we should say that this book is entirely um, from the perspective of the, the narrator's character, who um, whose name we never find out, but... Um, oh, it's, oh, oh, her original her, name. Her, yeah. her real name. Mm-hmm. Um, we never are told, although there is some speculation on what her real name might, might be. Um, and a lot of the scenes are just in, in her sitting in her little room thinking to herself and and we're kind of 
privy to her internal monologue as she in some sections of the book like is kind of breaking down and going crazy almost under the the pressure of the society that she's forced to live in and and those scenes are so intense to read because it really is this graphic unhindered exploration of a person just losing their mind right like slowly you think she's losing her mind i i think we are meant to understand that i mean the you know the famous quote from this book is don't let the bastards grind you down that that's right. like kind that's of the motto thing yeah um it's like the, the the motto or the mantra of this character right um that she uses as a prayer i think we should quickly interject that we didn't actually ever say what the plot of this book is i realized so uh, the book tells the the story of a handmaid, which in this which in this world portrayed in this book is a woman who is uh, basically assigned to and effectively owned by uh, a sort of man in this society of a certain stature who has a wife, a sort of official capital W wife, but then also a handmaid, which. Basically, she just exists to hopefully uh, bear the children of this man. Right. We're meant to understand that in this fut- this present alternative reality of America that the fertility rate has plummeted. Right. And so... Due to all kinds of factors, including potentially some kind of post-nuclear like fallout or something. There's definitely sort of radiation. And yeah, it's never 100. Yeah. percent And um, and, and I I gotta say like the world building in this book. So I I generally am not a big sci-fi uh, reader. Um, and I I find that sometimes with novels like this, uh, authors get way too excited about the details of the world versus the story. In this book, it's like. It is fantastic. The the I agree. little kernels that she gives you without just like saying, Okay, here's the chapter where I'm gonna spell it all mm-hmm. out for you. Like yep. you we get drips and drabs of just enough information to kind of understand what's happening and then you have to read between the lines to to fill it in a little bit more for yourself. So it's ever made one hundred percent clear why uh, so many people are infertile in this reality. Um, and again, it could be like you were saying before, uh, some form of propaganda as well. Um, well, we get we get a bunch of different. You know, I, I totally agree with you in terms of the uh, sort of like compactness of the world building. We get one line, I think, at one point during the book that describes the actual coup, which was an armed like assassination of all of Congress, basically, and the president, uh, right? Is- and, uh, you know, so this stuff is very sparse and we get a couple mentions of sort of radiation and things like that. We get a one... huge strain of syphilis and, and right, AIDS also right, right, are blamed. Right. We get one mention of sort of social factors pointing to men becoming like sort of losing their libido in the face of, I guess, increased um, kind of social agency of women. I think that is the implication. We get a bunch of different little um kind of data points suggesting why the why the you know, American society had gotten to the point it was immediately pre-Gilead but we're never given a big mm-hmm. dump of it and I I think I totally agree I think that works really well um you were going to quickly before I how I was going to talk about that aspect a little bit before we do sorry I want to hear what you were saying about the narrator losing her mind because I don't think that was something I ever really that didn't I don't think that struck me yeah. So again, you know, the, the narrator is in. She is one of the. She has had a child before and is still young enough that it she is had a, a child of her own will with her willing partner, right? With her husband. Gilead, yeah. Yes. Uh, so and she's still young, so there's like evidence that she can st- still potentially bear children. So she is given this position, right? Um, where her life is not her own, and she is completely. Uh, in service to the society, which is like you were saying, a police state that you, it is impossible to escape from everything. Like people live in this paranoid panopticon, like of, am I being bugged? And if, if I get like, there's a secret service, uh, not secret service, a secret police who mm-hmm. will. Yeah. So there's like all this crazy pressure on her to, to, to walk this very specific path and like straying from that path in any way 
could lead to her torture or her her death, mm-hmm. right? Um, or the death of her daughter, who she's been completely separated from, but she knows her daughter is um, out there somewhere, right? Still she, alive. She doesn't. She, she, she fact, suspects. And sometimes hopes she isn't sure. for her daughter's sake. Right. Yeah, yeah the book it never... Her her husband that she had in the pre-society and her daughter that she had in the pre-society, we never 100% know what right. actually happened to them. But we suspect that at least the daughter is probably right. alive. We have reason to believe she might be. But right. Well, anyway. So anyway, so like there, there's this incredible amount of pressure to, to live in a, this exact way. And this is a woman who still, I mean, I, I think it's only been a few years since uh like regular america has turned into this yeah, republic you get that sense, yeah. yeah it has not been a long time right so she still obviously remembers like being a normal citizen in the country right and and all of those rights have been stripped away from her and i mean i think a lot of the actions that she takes in the book we're meant to understand that she's just so resigned to the fact that like there's she has no other options that like this is just what she's gonna do Mm. um so there's that right but like all of these scenes where she's in her room and just like imagining getting a knife and like killing like stabbing somebody or like burning the house down or just like contemplating her lack of existence and and she can't tell anyone her, her name has been her real name is completely forbidden in this society. So, like, she has no identity outside of the man who, with whom she's a- attached to to, like, be the his breeding horse, basically, right? And I, I think there are scenes where she does kind of start to lose it. And, and the way that Atwood writes those scenes, um, those were the hardest parts for me to read, right? Because the, those were the ones that I, like... If I were in a position like that, right, I could imagine how that would feel where you're trying to keep up this facade. Like if I just, you know, get through every hour, every minute, like, you know, just one minute done, I'm moving on to the next one. Like you could get through something like that. But like thinking that like humans cannot um, act that way for, for long without just like starting to kind of go a little batty. Sure. And I think that's what's happening to her. Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I thought of it less of as her losing her mind and more that she's kind of just she's sort of um, losing herself or sort of sense of intentional self to the expectations this society has of her. Sure. You Which know, it's I more that she's is, being broken as opposed to yeah. losing her mind, per se. It's not so much that she's becoming to me anyway. It's not so much that she's becoming a. Uh, a kind of person without a sense of rationality or reason and more she's losing will to fight against what she knows is wrong. Yeah. And that, that is very much the pattern of, I mean, that's very much what's explored in 1984, you know, the, the sort of prototypical uh, text of, of this sort of dystopic, vision i i you have i forget you have not read 1984 i have not yeah it's definitely it's really worth reading um i i haven't in some years but i definitely would would recommend it if you haven't uh it is it is different to this book in a lot of respects but similar also in some including this overall message that the way that to the extent that a society like this will succeed it will do so by essentially sapping its citizens of the will to push back against it through just repeated. I mean, it's like you were saying the sort of don't let the bastards grind you down. It is literally the, both of these books sort of present this, a reality in which the bastards have all the time in the world to grind you down until you have no choice, but to acquiesce. Yeah. And, and that is a really terrifying, that's something very, it's terrifying to contemplate, you know, Um, to the, to pick up on the the world building stuff we were talking about, I you know I I knew essentially nothing of this book when I started reading it, other than that you'd recommended it, and I sort of I think I generally had a sense maybe it was some kind of dystopic vision, but honestly that was about it. I really didn't know uh, what the book was, and I'm really glad that that was the case because it's incredibly creepy as you get into it. I mean I think Atwood does a masterful job at laying these sort of breadcrumbs 
as you're you're getting into this book before you really understand the full implications of everything that is uh that's being described and i think that reaches a point of like really masterful attention to detail we the one of the first names we see of one of the of one of the other women one of the other handmaids in this world uh is of glenn and when i read that i thought it was sort of some like weird archaic germanic name like some kind of pennsylvania dutch when you look at it it just looks like Offglen or so it just almost looks like some sort of weird old world puritanical name which is obviously supposed to evoke you know there's a very puritanical society but then you start seeing of wayne and of warren and you entirely in your own head connect the dots of these three names you've seen and realize that these women are named entirely for the man they belong to um and the way that was spaced out and presented i i I sort of is i just couldn't get over it it was so brilliant and so sort of just disgusting and crushing when you actually understand what's being portrayed and and the the whole book works like that you know she's giving you these little pieces of information and you have to do a lot of the work of connecting them yourself and doing that makes you appreciate the horror of the whole thing all the more because you have to get there. Um, and I, you know, I, I just found it incredibly effective and kind of in a morbid way was one of the things that made me want to always just like, oh, I'll just read another chapter. You know, there's fairly short chapters. There's always kind of a new piece of information to get. Um, and it's always something that ends up being crazier than, than, than you had, than you would have assumed. Um, there's a really, really, really well written book and there's just one other um little stylistic thing i wanted to uh to mention i I think i I really liked the overall sort of prose style of this book it's it's very um uh unassuming but also extraordinarily um uh, kind of thoughtful at in in just sort of across the board there's i i put down one quote that's sort of um, I think represents what I'm talking about. This is on page 110 of the, uh, what is this? The Anchor Books paperback edition. And um, the, the main character is of Warren, right? Um, of Fred. Of Fred, sorry. Yeah. Uh, which also is like really clever, I think, because it, Offred looks like it could right. be an actual name. Well, it, it and also it kind of looks like Offred. Oh wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's a good, good layers. Yeah. Well, that's exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. I mean, you pointed that out. Literally, the kind of thing I'm right about to observe here, uh, where she says, "I sit in a chair and think about the word chair. It can also mean the leader of a meeting. It can also mean a mode of execution. It is the first symbol syllable in charity. It is the French word for flesh. None of these facts has any connection with the others. These are the kinds of litanies I use to compose myself." And I mean, I think this sort of speaks to, in part, speaks to what you were saying about uh, her kind of maybe losing her mind a bit over the course of the book, right? This is almost an exercise she's doing to keep herself composed. Um, And she sort of presents all of these um, facts relating to the word or the syllable chair as being kind of isolated, unrelated pieces of information. But of course, they all thematically speak to the content of the book. I mean, obviously, Atwood decided to drill down onto that because they all suggest concepts that are directly relevant to everything that's going on, both in the moment and in the larger novel. Um, and I remember reading that, that passage, which is, you know, in some sense, it's kind of a sort of showy literary passage that it's drawing attention to itself in terms of its use of language. Um, but it just made me think about how it made me think about her process of writing this book, which of course I don't, I don't have any specific insight to, um, but the level of of uh, attention to detail she she spends because she'll go into those little digressions just from time to time, uh, and I find it really impressive how um, quickly she will just do a little drill down and then get out of it, and you're left with a lot. You're just left with a lot to think about, um, but in a very freeform way, you know. I just appreciate it in passages like that how how much it feels kind of tossed off and yet when you sit and think about it there's it's there's just a lot there um i don't know i i'm i don't have any more to say about it i guess but i i really appreciated um the kind of 
like easy um, insight, like not easy, but the sort of um, those seemingly dashed off insights you could find throughout the book that were obviously actually the result of a lot of thought and attention. Yeah. That just made me realize the, she does the same thing with the kind the like secret code word that the the resistance uses in this book, which well, is, I don't remember what is was Mayday. It? Oh, of course. But yeah, but yeah. the narrator has this whole like similar digression about yeah. her former husband teaching her the significance of Mayday and like mm-hmm. how it's from the French word, which I can't. Um, yeah, it would be pronounced the same way. Mayday, M apostrophe. Right, and so it's like these yeah. two. Which help me, I guess that would be. Yeah, or I need assistance or whatever. Um. So, right so there's this like and and now i'm trying to figure out like okay so there are many instances of words having different meanings or interpretations um and i, I don't 100 like what is the is there a significance to that well it could be i mean part of it i think is that language is so uh language is made unavailable to the women in this book they're not supposed to be able to read at all they're not given reading materials younger women who are growing up in the society are not being taught to read oh is that what we're supposed we're meant to i think that's explicitly stated oh yeah and so uh and which i i when um you know so at one point in the novel the main character is uh illicitly summoned by her commander her her effectively her owner, this man who runs the household, uh, to his private study, essentially just to be a kind of semi-sexual, but like, I guess, primarily intellectual companion. He likes to play Scrabble with her. And something that sort of blew my mind in those sections was that until we start seeing her um, actually engage with, uh, you know, a, a some pursuit like Scrabble, you know, a word game. Uh, I realized that that's the first time we see her in this present reality ever be able to exercise her intellect in an externalized way at all. Like I, it, I, when that scene happened for the first time, um, I sort of had these like flashbacks of the whole book and I was thinking, Oh wow, this is, she's given absolutely no opportunities ever to, um, do anything again externally with her mind and she's clearly actually an intelligent person um, but the society gives her zero avenues to express that at all Um, and so i think the book is i I think maybe um you know some of the you know these these sort of linguistic digressions that we're talking about i think they probably speak to the importance of language in society and are there in part to highlight the complete um, tamping down of it by this society. Right. Which again, like in 1984, that is a central, uh, that is an absolute central property of the dictatorship portrayed in that novel is the suppression of language, the simplification of language and the restriction of it from citizens. Yeah. I mean, she's like, I think also the book is, is, uh, demonstration of the in, importance of uh, being able to like control your own narrative, um, even if it's yeah. in in a small way. But I mean, c- clearly the narrator has no control over it. I mean, she she's not even named, right? She's been stripped of her identity, and she falls into this affair with um, another one of the the male servants um, that lives at the the house where she is kept and. Like one of the scenes, uh, I think it's like when their affair initiates, or or maybe soon after that, she she tells him her her real name, her forbidden name, and it's all about how like she she needs to share her name so that she can be known, right? Right, and then at the end of the book, we find out that um, the entire narration is just a collection of tapes mm-hmm. that this woman um at so we we are meant to understand that at some point she was actually able to escape we don't know what her like an, her fate her was, actual yeah. fate was but she did escape uh, long enough to record all of these remembrances on audio cassette that then like a hundred and some years in the future are discovered by like i guess basically anthropologists who are trying to recon so the the last chapter of this book is 
you know, takes place a century mm-hmm. later after the Republic of Gilead has just fallen. Um, and there are these professors who are trying to reconstruct the history of this era. And one of the things that they find are these audio cassettes that they then transcribe. And, you know, it becomes what they call the Handmaid's Tale. Um, and it's like she finally gets to share her story like the entire time you're reading the book you think that all of these remembrances are just in her head right that she's just yeah. sitting in well she, except she said there are little allusions yeah. Toward, from time to towards time the end to, it starts to like to an audience or to a yeah. reader or a listener but at, for most of the book it's like yeah. you're reading it and you just think that it's she's like disembodied yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, but you're right yes that towards the end it kind of starts to slip where you're like oh she's telling this story yeah. but then i think you could also until you get to the end and you find out for sure what happens i think in those moments you can kind of like maybe almost interpret like she's telling herself her own story mm. like writing her like not writing because she's not writing uh, but like um explaining herself back into existence like she's explaining her identity to yeah, herself sure, yeah. to remind herself of her identity right it's just like cyclical thing but you're right yeah eventually uh, it's it's less obvious um so yeah it's the important and and to the larger political point of the story right i mean like women at the time that atwood is writing this book and women today um have are definitely in a circumstance where they have less control over their own narrative you know in comparison to men for sure in society and Mm -hmm. and i think this story is like in part about that as well i think so which so the first time I read this book, speaking of the ending, right? Yeah. The first time I read it, the ending, it was uplifting to me because you don't know for sure if she escaped or not, but you can hope because you don't know, you know, what happened. You can pick the one that is the more hopeful ending and that she did escape. And you know also that this society uh, crumbled. So like. Sure. It's sort of hopeful, I guess, in the long term. Long sure. view. Yeah. yeah. But, but. I the second time reading it, I actually found it to be um, way more bittersweet at the end because not not because you don't find out what her fate is, but because she it, even though she she had the ability to like make these audio cassettes, her narrative is still being picked apart by yeah, these other that was really striking. men. I, I assume that they're supposed to be men at the end, the professors who are yeah, like... At least the speaker is. Right. And it's like he transcribed her journal and, and they're talking about how they didn't 100% know what the order of the tapes were supposed to be. So the actual narration of the story it it weaves throughout different time periods. Like first she's back in the regular US, then she's in the present day, and then she's like at her re-education that happens sort of in the middle of the timeline, right? And and I thought that was just like a narrative, like she's remembering things that happened in the past, but the ending chapter made me think like, oh, are we meant to, to like, they just got the tapes out of order? And that's why, oh, like... Interesting. I, def- I definitely still read it as that was the order she mm-hmm. recorded them. But yeah, that's a good point. I, I hadn't even thought about that. So it's like she had, in the end, but, she, but she had less agency. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, this is heartbreaking, right? Because like she, all she wanted to do was to be able to tell her own story. And in the end, she like is not even given that. Uh, or she sort of is, but it comes with this like jocular. Yeah. Like haha, there's the kind of remove right. from history. Yeah, that that I found really fascinating because you're right that the gender aspect of it I think is is intentional and very notable. And then there's also this I, I guess less important, but still I I found interesting um, statement on historical remove. You know how easy it is to look at um, people from history and sort of almost dehumanize them um, because they feel so far gone. Um, you know her story is treated obviously with weight by the historians, but also with a kind of um, lightness that would not be appropriate if you were speaking about the the plight of someone that, who contemporary to you. But then, of course, why why should someone in the past have any less value than than someone not right? I mean, it, I thought that was an interesting. I thought that was an interesting kind of little yeah point at the end. Can yeah, it was almost inf- it was sort of almost infuriating reading that mm-hmm. that end portion. Here's a here's a question for you. Um, this is something that I I think is arguably a a, a a flaw of the book, or 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 perhaps I just didn't 
pick up on it fully. Um, there are a couple very, there are a couple references to race in this novel. Actually, I think most, one of which actually occurs in that historical uh, bit at the end when they mention that existing racist views in the pre-Gilead United States of America were one of the things that allowed uh, the the Gilead Revolution to take place. And there's another case, uh, in I think, in the main body where the narrator sort of references blaming um, some of these attacks on Islamic fundamentalists. That happens. But for the most part, we get very few mentions of race. And I have to imagine this society would have been racially segregated um, and I think that, again, is implied to some extent, but it's essentially not addressed in any significant way whatsoever. And part of me suspects that if this book had been written now, it almost certainly would address race more than it than it does. Um, did you have any, I don't know, how did you, did you have any readings of this or any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, I, d- I picked up on that as well, right? I mean, I think that is a very noticeable exclusion in in the novel um i feel like there is a reference to um the children of ham like Mm. being pun and and isn't like if i remember the bible correctly aren't the children of ham supposed to be like demonic um i I should have brushed up on this yeah i didn't think to chris is gonna check this but like my memory of it in in the bible like there's a race of humans who are essentially cursed and and i believe that it is used as a like racist um excuse for why like that that non-white races are are called the the children of ham and and that's why you're allowed to um yeah be racist towards these groups because the like according to the bible like these people are are part of that sub race um and and there is definitely so anyway yeah that that, that is mentioned in the book and yeah you're right that that is used by some bigoted religious groups as racist justification so something we don't know for sure but there is a reference to the children of ham like being in the colonies which in this world is just the uh, horrible uh, parts of the country that have a lot of radiation poisoning that that people who are just cast off from society or are they're sent to basically yeah. perform slave labor well, and jews were we know them in the novel that jews were sort of deported and in some cases kind of just dumped in the ocean allegedly uh, right or Pro- pot- probably potentially, yeah yeah these, like, or converted like deportation yeah. companies um so yeah so that stuff was mentioned but uh it 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 kind of felt a little bit like an afterthought to yeah me. sure i mean so we are we never know for sure where this book takes takes place although i believe we are no, we do it's in cambridge massachusetts okay that's i thought we were meant to assume that but it's definitely they, true based okay on the, i mean the the wall is like the harvard wall okay and she mentions the, the i think the charles river comes up in mass mass ave which if so i spent i spent two years in sure living in cambridge so for someone like, who's not like familiar mass ave. Oh, yeah massachusetts avenue classic street sure so yeah yeah so it's in new england which is described as the center of this republic so i wonder if you're meant to kind of understand well this is is, which is already a really like good i think interesting choice because that's an area that because the puritans yeah because it's it's currently known as being such a sort of blue area right it's such a kind of liberal um university uh area but obviously also has um a really strong legacy as a puritan um center you know, I think that was a smart, I think that was a really smart, good and smart choice. Yeah. But you're right. So race is definitely not, it's more the conflict between gender. Yeah, gender is the, yes, definitely the overriding concern of this book and totally understandably. And I don't, sure. I'm not really. No, I think it's a completely valid cri- criticism because it's something that modern feminists criticize the second wave feminists for not including the issue of race in a lot of their platforms um but and demographically in the united states that's just like you can't talk about kind of big social issues and not talk about race right right. it's just intrinsic um interestingly and we should talk about the tv show a little bit more later i keep saying we should talk about stuff later but (laughs) i I, talk about it now i was looking up the the hulu uh show and and the actor who the actors who are cast to play 
the husband, Luke, the daughter, and the friend, Moira, are all um, black actors. Mm-hmm. So, like, the TV show at least is going... I don't know if it will explicitly deal right. with race, but, like, there are characters who are clearly, like, non-white. Mm-hmm. So, it'll be interesting to see if that becomes an explicit aspect. Because I, I guess if you're you're up... So, something that we want to talk about, right, is how this book fits into the 80s in which the period in which it was written and how it relates to the modern day. And if you're making this as a modern day story, I I feel like you have to tackle race in some way. Although a thing I think that a lot of television does is, and I think in a lot of cases, this is appropriate, right? To sort of cast um, uh, non-white actors um, simply to have a more representative cast that actually looks like the United States or, or, you know, whatever country is being, is being represented. Um, but also I think it is common um, in stories like this to sort of stop there and not necessarily address the racial implications of, of the the story being told. And I, you know, I, I have absolutely no way to predict at this point what that show will be like. So I'm not even going to try. Yeah. But yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see. And I am, I am looking forward to it, um, to the Hulu show. Um so do we want to talk about the, uh, I don't know, I guess the resonance of this book in the modern era? And, yeah. yeah. Yes. So go, you want to you start? So when I first read this book, I think it was the very early Obama years. Yeah. Um, and I li- lived through the Bush years of a lot of, of, this book is about the Reagan moral majority, but that yep. still exists. I mean, it exists still today and it was felt in uh george w bush's presidency as well so i i knew about this threat but i did not it 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 felt quaint the the specific like christian fundamentalists and like tv show uh pastors and like that group ascending to to amassing so much power in in the u.s definitely felt like a thing from the 80s yeah versus today where it's actually just white supremacists uh who definitely have elements of the moral majority in their platforms but it's it's very that part kind of felt dated in a way um the specifics of it even if more broadly i could completely like see the the slow process in which the uh, the former u.s falls to this theocracy basically like the lead up to the police state yeah that was the most terrifying part because it's like oh this is just kind of happening right, right. now where slowly people's rights are being taken away but the the details of it definitely felt like this is of the 80s and the thing that was like the most interesting to read is just like how this would be com- a completely different story with twitter because or just the mass media that we have, the like access the internet, to, in- yeah, because um, this book is obviously taking place pre-internet, and part of the way in which the takeover is able to happen is just that people don't have access to full information. The, the internet does exist to some degree in the novel through some kind of like computing device people yeah. have access to. That but does it's very basic connected network, yeah. yeah. But it, but it's yeah. But people don't have phones, right? In the way that we just like have access to, and I know that even governments today are able to censor information mm-hmm. um, of their their population oh, yeah. i mean there's lots of internet services that in china just basically don't exist right but those are societies that have like established that already whereas in the u.s like we're used to to having freer access and then you would have to roll that back which i right. think well the, yeah the weird thing there is that the same faction that would be interested or likely to enact similarly socially regressive um, policies in this country now is also the one that is most likely to let tech companies or any other companies operate in a sort of like unfettered and and totally uh, like potentially rapacious way right i mean anti-regulation etc um but it is but it did so i didn't find the armed revolution very that premise very convincing in this book, that seems like something that's just very unlikely to be able to occur um, in a country like the United States. But it, 
I was sort of chilled by the notion of a small group of extremists just slowly changing the country from within. Because it kind of feels like that's what's happening, actually. But the the focus currently is less on rolling back women's rights overall and more rolling back. No, the... that's involved. Sure, but it, it's less like the central. Right. It's it. Aim, the yeah. actual central aim feels way more overtly racist than just saying yeah. like women should be second class citizens because the Bible says so. Right. Which is clearly like what this what Gilead is using as its support and and so like to your point about how this book kind of just ignores the issue of race like it doesn't seem specifically as relevant today because that obviously i think is the the larger threat to society currently yeah um but right the slow creep towards a a fascist what is a fascist state yeah like that is is completely like oh this is just some stuff that is happening currently right and that's terrifying Mm -hmm. and the ways in which people like the even the narrator herself like as long as stuff is not directly harming her in the slow lead up to the establishment of the republic of gilead like she seems completely fine to she's not so much fine but she doesn't do anything i mean a thing that this is sort of dumb to admit but some of the stuff that hit me hardest in the book i guess just because this is how humans work and they relate to the people who they see themselves as being like i suppose but reading about her relationship with luke uh and his kind of um objection to these policies but also his Uh, You know, she sort of describes him as being a little quicker to adopt them than she would have liked or expected. And that sort of leads her to this train of thought where she then wonders, like, was there part of him that kind of liked this, like, ownership he then had over her? It's crazy. It's uh, part of the book is about, you know, I think what people will acquiesce to or what people will let govern them no matter what they might have thought otherwise right and, and i think it's terrifying to think about one of the the ants describes it like you're giving up freedoms to get new freedoms like you're giving up your independence to live in the society where women are like, quote unquote safe right protected yeah. right where you're not going to be raped even though like a Rape clearly still happens sure, in, in course, the Republic yeah. of Gilead. Yeah, so I have two things about the Luke character. One, right, the narrator start, starts to feel like she describes it as paranoid about mm-hmm, her. Yeah. She's like, she doesn't know for sure, is he happy about these new policies or am I just being paranoid about mm-hmm, it, right? So yeah. you're, so that's one thing. And the, the second thing is I, I think we're kind of meant to understand that Luke is a little bit of a dick, a boorish figure who... It's accent lightened, but yeah, probably wouldn't be. I I feel like the commander who she has this relationship with and and Luke, especially in my second reading, I feel like the commander and Luke are more similar is that they both kind of emotion emotionally manipulate her. It's just that Luke is living in a society where he can't also like completely physically right. control her, but they're both men <laughs> who are married and they enter in this relationship with her. And I I think we're meant to understand that when she has her affair with Luke, that she's younger and he's older. He's her, her memories of him. I mean, I know that mansplaining is kind of um, an an overused word, but that's how I would describe these scenes where it's like, I remember the time he explained to me what Mayday meant. I remember the time when he was explaining all these other things and and those are like her memories of him um so i i think we are meant to see a connection between like these men have the same tendencies it's just the different forms Mm -hmm. that they take depending on the society and that's why luke is a bad guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that makes sense um yeah her the the men it in the book are are very fascinating and the serena very few of them actually for how much of a patriarchal society it is yeah i guess it would make sense that somebody in the narrator's position would not not, i guess that's intentional right she she more interacts with women which is why i really want to quickly talk about the wife character Mm. um serena joy who's great like i love that Mm. character 
Um, just I, yeah, I thought that was a very surprisingly complex character yeah. by the end of the novel. Yeah. Yes. But also just like, oh, it's so easy to hate her. But then feel... Right, right of course, yeah. Like empathy, because she's presented as... as um, a, a character who in the the pre-Gilead time like was a right-wing fundamentalist who did advocate for like women should mm-hmm. their place is the Family home roles, yeah. right and then she gets that and is like clearly like in the yeah, in similar and miserable. right in this in not the same way as the narrator but like similar like going mm-hmm. kind of in like cabin fever yeah and her relationship with the narrator those scenes are just really well done um and if we can briefly talk about the show again, um, also when I was looking up the cast list just to see, uh, so the the act- actor who they cast to play Serena Joy um, looks to be on the the younger side, just based on mm-hmm. her IMDb picture, which is a shame because I think like very intentionally we're meant to understand that this is an older woman maybe like not past her prime but certainly like in this society that completely um privileges like the fertility right. of women like this is an older right i mean woman. If, she were, if she were a young woman she would presumably be, be fertile yeah, unless right. like she was right i know sterile but, just, but um which is like an outlawed word I, like again here's another like sterile uh, infertility is out outlawed as a word in the society and something else that i wanted to briefly mention was the the classification of unwoman, yeah. which they they never define entirely what that is, but I, I like sometimes they they say it's it's women who um, can no longer give birth or or um, may, maybe have had some kind of operation that that has made them sterile um, in the pre Gilead time, and and like the connection of uh, fertility with whether or not you're allowed to be called a woman. Um, and the fact that like the classification is unwoman, it's like so simple, but the, yeah. the, the like yeah, horrifying effective. word choice. Anyway, that's just a little digression. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's safe to say we both would highly recommend yes. this novel, *Handmaid's Tale* by Margaret Atwood. Um, despite, I think, despite the um, differences in era, the eras when it was written and, and now, I think I, I think it's safe to say it's pretty resonant. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. sure, and and also I would also I would probably also say those areas are there's more continuity than you know than one would one would suspect just by looking at like the differences in pop culture from then to now. It's definitely definitely very uh, relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, next month we are reading a very very different very different novel, uh, The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler, uh, a book that's been adapted to film a, a few different times. Um, I don't remember why we picked it, but we'll figure that out by the time we record the next episode. If you would uh, like to get a free Audible trial and get uh, any of the books that we read on this podcast as audiobooks, you can go to audibletrial.com slash idlebooks. You'll get a month-long trial and a free audiobook to keep no matter what. Um, did you want? Did you have any final thoughts before we we sign off, or or do you think we basically covered it all on the Handmaid's Tale? Yeah, not anything. God, we didn't talk about this, but Margaret Atwood very recently in the New York Times had an op-ed. Oh, you're right. Ab- yeah, that's about a good closing note. Yeah, so she I, just a, we're recording this on the twentieth, and she just a, a few days ago wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the the resurgence of this book recently, um, and. It, worth seeking out yes and and just discussion discussing its continued relevance like in, in the ways that we talked about it definitely has specific relevance to the 80s but also just in general like it has relevance to where american culture continues to go um yep. and it's just an interest it's interesting to hear her all these decades later talk about how still affecting um the way that women are subjugated in the book. Yeah. Like specifically, if I can just say, she calls out um, one of the re-education scenes where the women are supposed to talk about like these sins that they've committed. And one of the women shares a story about how she was gang raped and, and had an abortion. And in this Gilead society, that is seen as a sin, right? And all the other women are supposed to chant like shame at 
her um and and atwood in the op-ed talks specifically how like that scene is just like intense because we're still doing that to women um you know we don't need this fascist society to create that so yeah um yeah so seek that out that's uh margaret atwood in the new york times book review um margaret atwood on what the handmaid's tale means in the age of trump is the name of the article yeah yeah it's definitely a good read it means good quick read a lot of things still Mm -hmm. sadly um so that was the handmaid's tale by margaret atwood next month the long goodbye by raymond chandler a hard-boiled uh detective novel very different uh in tone to this one um and if you have any email you'd like to send us about anything we have read or will be reading, you can do so at books at idlethumbs.net. We're also on Twitter at Idle Book Club, and our website is idlebookclub.com. Um, so we will be back next month with The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. And thanks for joining us. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. Bye. Bye. Bye.